I'm sure it's not the first time it's happened to somebody, but uh, as you're getting ready to speak and you hear the songs that are sang and stuff, and I'll probably make reference to it now that I've... I don't know what songs they choose and what songs they decide. They choose them a couple months in advance sometimes, is that right? And so some of these songs, and I know she mentioned it earlier in the week when I was working on it, polishing it up and stuff to, for the sermon, and just some of them fit right in with it. So it's just amazing. If, just back up half a step. If you don't know me very well, I'm, I'm Brian, so I know that you all know my wife more than me. Most of you do. And she's the one that's always up here, and you see her a lot. You see maybe me cleaning up or taking down the stage equipment at the end of the sermon and stuff. So, uh, but we met back in Bible college. She was a librarian, and she worked at the library when I was working in, or going through grad school. And so, cute librarian, I was thinking, hey, it's a pretty nice lady. She's, Bible college is a good place to meet somebody. That's a good thing. But uh, I have four main interests, just to give you just a little bit of background before we get started. And my main interest is, is four things, and I've had them since, more or less since we've been married. I really enjoy guns. I collect them. I love shooting them. I, I, if you want to talk guns and talk a long time, we can talk firearms. I also enjoy history. I like specifically military history, true stories of military history. And before I came here, within about the two years before I came here, I would read or listened to an audio form about 135 books of military history, all true stories, all things that actually happen because it's way better than fiction. And you just can't make that stuff up. It's just really good stuff. So if you want to talk about that stuff, we can talk a long time. Also really enjoy motorcycle road racing. If you want to talk motorsports side of things, I really enjoy motorcycle road racing. And, uh, and so does some of my family gets drug around with me around the world as I like to go to some of the events. And uh, the fourth thing I enjoy a lot is creation. Um, Pedro had let me come and speak to the youth group last fall, the beginning of the youth group, about a creation and a I was really torn between speaking about this this morning and doing a creation message. And it was really, and Cole reminded me, I have two times, so the next one's probably going to be a creation about the creation and stuff next time. And, but this one is one that was really just kind of stuck out. I think I, I don't know why I just kept going back to this one. Though I really love creation, this kept coming back. And then seeing the songs that they sang, and then last week Cole was just a couple chapters before this one. So it's like now, okay, I see why that things will fit together with this. It's just neat how the Lord works things out when I try to work them out or try to think them through my logical mind. This is what I'd really like to do and then something different, but it didn't work that way and it's for a reason. So that's just a little bit of background. And before we get started, then let's open up in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless the time we spend in his word this morning. And Father, we do come before you and we just seek your face this morning. We thank you for the songs that were sang. We thank you for the scriptures that's been read. Thank you for the, the prayers that have gone up to you the offering that's been taken, everything so far, Lord, has been to glorify your name, to proclaim Christ first in all we do and say. And as we continue in opening your word now, may we continue to bring forth Christ, not ourselves, not our church, not a cause, Lord, but may we bring forth Jesus Christ as our only true hope in our lives and for eternity. May you be glorified in what's done, Lord. May people see you and not me. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story of love and history. I read a lot of stuff, and I ran across a story. This was 25 years ago or so. And it was about a lady named Christina and her mother, Andrea. And they lived outside of Mexico City. And outside of Mexico City, the mom was raising her daughter. Andrea, the mom, was raising Christina the best she could. And as Christina would get older, she could see the lights of Mexico City off in the distance. And she would ask her from time to time, she says, what's all the bright lights? And what's all the shiny stuff out there? And her mom would kind of just say, that's the city. And we're not going there. 
And then as she, every once in a while, she'd ask her again, what are those lights in the city? You know, what is the city? And her mom would say, it's not a real nice, but a, a lot of bad things can happen there. You can have good things and bad things, but we're, we don't need to be there. And so as she would ask a little more and probe a little more and see why not as time went on, and her mom would just try to explain to her the best she could that's not a real good place if you're going to, for us to be. And so inevitably you could see where it was going. And then one day in her teenage years, uh, Andrea woke up and Christina was no longer there. Christina was gone. She had packed some things, put them in a, a, a bag, and she was gone. Her mom was saddened because she knew Christina didn't have a lot of trade skills and she wasn't finished with school yet. And she was saddened because she was pretty sure the only way that she would be able to make it was to be a prostitute. And it really broke her heart. And the story we have this morning kind of goes along the same lines of that. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you do, and if not, we will have it on the... On the screen behind me. Open up to Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we run into a, a similar story. We're going to do a little bit of background first so we can understand the context of it, and then we'll get into it. It says in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 3, this is who Jesus is speaking to at this time. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them? So he told them this parable. And now he tells them at this point the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And we're going to skip those two. We're going to go to the parable of the lost son. And we've heard a lot of stories on the prodigal son. I'm not trying to updo anybody in anything I'm saying here. This is a, you, I'm sure everyone here has heard a story or a sermon or something on the prodigal son. I think the little bit of twist that we're going to put on this morning, hopefully we can apply this to our lives that we can be more like Christ at the end of this. And so we're going to just read through it first and we'll break it down as we go through. We'll start in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. It says, and this is the third parable Jesus is speaking to them. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Very, very common 
passage that we've heard many times before. But we, we need to see there's a few things. If you do take notes and stuff, I do have a little outline for them. So if you, those of you who like to write stuff down, I did do that. The first point is, what are we thinking? And if we go back to verse 11 through 13, and, and what are we thinking? It says, the very first part, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Well, you know, our mind never shuts off. Whether we're sleeping, whether you're reading a book, whether you're sitting out there right now, whether you're driving down the street in your car, your mind never shuts off. You're always thinking about something. Even when you're, you know, you're sleeping, you're thinking, oh, you wake up, I had this crazy dream. It was fill in the blank what it is. We're always thinking about something. We don't just wake up and decide to do something. You think on it first. Cole didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I'm going to get married this morning. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You get to know a person. You think on it. You think, oh, she's a nice girl. You go to the library and you find somebody nice. You, know? <laughs> you, can, you will think on something long before you do anything about it. So this son just didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I think I could do it on my own. I'm going to get up and I'm going to ask my dad for my share of the property, my share of the inheritance, and I'm going to go do my own thing. He had to think on it before he acted on it. And we all have to do that. We didn't all decide one day to just, hey, let's go live in Abu Dhabi. We had to think, okay, what's the parameter? Okay, now if I do this and this move, and if I move here, am I sacrificing this? Am I going to gain this? What's the, there's, there's give and take. The son had to have some sort of long-term goal here. So we never do anything without thinking it through because our mind never shuts off. Well, somewhere the son was thinking, I can probably do this a little bit different than my dad would do it. Well, as we saw in the, in the scriptures in, in Luke there, he, dad divided him his property. He gave it to him. He said, okay, here you go. And he takes it, and he says, not many, look in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had took his journey into a far country, and there squandered his property in reckless living. Now, nowhere in this, I mean, we have a lot of latitude here for literary openness, I guess you could say, but at the same time, you know, the, the father never said, you're going to waste it all. I'm not going to give it to you, and I'm not going to do this because you're going to... The father didn't say anything. He gave him his portion, let him go his way. The cultural norm of the time, there's a, a class that we had in, in college. Now, I know if you even had to take it. Some of us did. It was called uh, Bible Customs. It was a lot of stuff of that time frame so that when you're reading stuff in the Bible, you understand, okay, what was the custom of the time? What was during the time frame? What was the... Because things are quite different if you live in a Western world or if you live in Asia or if you live in South Africa or if you live somewhere. It's not exactly the same here as it is in those places. Well, one of the ones I was reading out of it was saying that one of the customs of the time was the firstborn would get married first and just go right down the line. They would Sometimes it'd be arranged and sometimes they wouldn't. But sometimes if someone was showing a bit of rebellious streak, they would take that out of turn. So... As Jesus is telling this, he's showing that the younger son is showing a bit of a rebellious streak. He's having a bit of over-independence, may you say, something like that. Because he's not following the cultural norm of, of what the people were doing. And so he asked for his inheritance when the father's not sick. He's not asking for his father's blessing on his deathbed, where, you know, you have Esau and stuff like this, where, you know, those kind of a, a deathbed where you're asking, hey, you know, Bless me now, you're about to pass away. No, he was doing fine. They had this property and everything, he was doing good. And so he divided them into his living, he goes it all, and if you look in the last part of 13, took his journey to a far country. His plans were nowhere near there. They were off in the distance. And he takes it in that far country, 
and he squandered it in reckless living. And he could have had a lot of nice things. Could have had fastest camel. He probably hung around the friends and he had them show him where the best racing horse to buy was. And he had even put racing stripes on the side of his horse to make it look even better. And, you know, he was out in the party with his friends and his friends were, oh, since you're in town, well, you've got to show you this place. This is a good place to eat. And they were taking him to all the stuff and his friends were around him and he was the talk. He had the money. He had the inheritance and he was letting people know that he was there with, with the money and had the good stuff. He's in reckless living. He's drinking it up, carousing it up, doing all kinds of things that but he probably had a plan, but you know, I'm going to do this. Oh, this is nice now. I'll do this first. Well, let's look in uh, Philippians uh, 4, verses 7 and 8, when going back to but what we think on, or what are we thinking? Because Philippians 4, verses 7, uh, 7, 8, and 9, actually, it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The Bible says we need to be thinking on these things. I am pretty certain this younger son wasn't thinking too much on any of these things. He wasn't thinking on the lovely, the good things, the honest, the just. Probably not a lot, a whole lot of those things. So the first thing I'll challenge you with is what are we thinking about? In our idle time, when you're driving down the road in the car by yourself, are you thinking about the things from home group? Are you thinking about the things from the sermon the previous week or a missionary said something? Are we thinking about what kind of trouble we might get into? I mean, we've all been guilty of it. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody but myself. Where I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'd like to kind of do this. It would be fun to do this. You know, and I've used this when we was, I was working on my AMP certification to cut that. That's a long story. When I was working on that, I went to a church with Wendy down there, and I cannot, what was it? It was like Shuri Hills Baptist Church or something like that. I can't remember, but it, they had a, a group there, and they were asking what kind of things you do to help when you train your children. I said, boy, that's tough because your children can make you upset. They can make you mad, and they can do things that make you like, well, what are you thinking? But I answered with these verses here because Wendy and I both try to think on those things to keep it on a spiritual level, not on a reactionary level. I don't want to just bite back at my kids and be upset and angry and frustrated at something they did. I want to teach them what things are honest and what things are just and lovely and what things are good. I'm trying to teach them through the Word of God, not through my frustration or through my anger or anything like this. So in the, closing out the first point, and what are we thinking? Um, we need to think on the things that are of Christ and not on the things of the world. There's nice things. It's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong. It's not bad to have or want or desire nice things. It's when those things become an obsession to where now you're leaving out Jesus out of your life. You're leaving Christ out of your thought process. So the second thing is, is what do our actions produce? And this is in verses 14 through 16, if you'll read with me. It'd be easier to read this with my glasses on. 
And we'll see what happens here with the son, with his, his thinking and then his followed through with his actions produced this. Verse 14 reads, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And so the famine here, as we can see in here, is physical as well as spiritual. Sometimes the physical need of a famine comes from a spiritual lacking. The son was not thinking on spiritual things. He's not thinking on those whatsoever things are good and lovely and honest and just and, and wholesome. He's thinking on, man, I can have this and this. And he says he squandered his living. And his need was spiritual. But because he's, or he could say, yeah, well, I needed food and I need clothing and I've worn this out. Now I don't have any money. Yes, he has physical needs, but the physical needs arose because of a spiritual need that he had not filled the need to be there constantly with the Father. And so his spiritual need was to get back to the Lord, but he's only seeing, oh, man, now I need food. Oh, I'm going to go hire myself. If I get a job, then I'll get some food. When really the need was still spiritual, but now he's trying to fill it with physical things. So the, the famine, of course, the famine in the land is affecting everybody, but this guy hires him out to feed pigs. I always have said this, is like when reading this, whether it's in small groups or Bible study or something, He's talking to Hebrews here. How kosher is that for a Hebrew to be in a pig pen eating the husks and the, and the leftovers and the cobs and the pods with the pigs? That's not very clean. I mean, that, Jesus is showing a really vivid picture here of someone in their culture where the pigs, you know, they're unclean animal and you know, not to touch them, and he's in there feeding them and eating the food along with them. He is really, really at rock bottom at this point. And uh, so I'm not skipping to the point. Uh, yeah, going back to that, he wouldn't have had plans to fail because he went there probably thinking, I can run a farm better than my dad. I can run a, a farm better than my parents did. What I'll do is I'll hire servants like this, and I can do this. And he didn't, have, he didn't go there thinking, I'm going to waste all my money. I'm going to buy a bunch of cool things, and I'm going to spend a bunch of time partying. I'm going to spend some time with friends and get to see the sights. He didn't go think. I'm sure he didn't. Nobody thinks that way. I'm just going to take all the money and go blow it. I'm going to spend it all and have nothing left over. Nobody thinks that. Say, oh, I'm going to take this money, and I'm going to start a business, I'm going to start this, and I'm going to be able to have this, and it's going to be better than I saw this person do it. Well, he saw how his dad had it, but he thought, I can do better than this. So he didn't go there planning to waste it all and end up in a pig pen eating with pigs. And none of us plan to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, leave God, or I'm going to stop going to church, or I'm going to quit on my family, or my kids, or my job, or my career, whatever it is, and none of us plan that kind of stuff. It only happens when we see, we take our eyes off of our spiritual need and put them on physical needs, and we stop thinking about what our needs are with Christ daily, minute by minute sometimes. Sometimes those, those influences come in minute by minute. If you're at work and someone's saying bad jokes or saying bad things or offering some bad advice or something like that, you're being bombarded constantly with bad things that you're going to have to turn away. Sometimes it's even people you might call friends. I think, I can't. I can't believe they said that, or they offered that, or they said this, or want me to go here, or to do this, or participate. They come from different directions, and we just always need to be on the guard for that kind of stuff. So, uh, he surely had an idea to be prosperous. He wanted to be 
a success because he wanted to I'll show my dad I can do it. I'll show my father I can be successful. When he took his, his inheritance and he went off into that far country, he's, I'm sure he was wanting to say, I'm going to go back in five years and I'm going to show my dad what a great farm I was able to build or whatever he was wanting to do with his, his inheritance. And so he, he didn't have a plan B. There was no plan B. And the thing about it is Christ doesn't have a plan B either. He doesn't have a plan B for our life. He wants our lives to succeed. You know, when they were singing the song, Sovereign Over Us. And God's, our plans are still to prosper. Regardless of how much we stray or drift, some of us drift really far, some of us just a little bit. And regardless of how far, his plans are still for us to prosper. He hasn't forgotten us, just the same way that song sang. He hasn't forgotten us, he doesn't forget us. He keeps us in the forefront of his mind because he knows that he wants us to be successful. He doesn't have a plan B. We may say, okay, I'm going to go to Abu Dhabi, but if that doesn't work, plan B, I can go work here or I can get a job doing this here. We may try to have a plan B in case something doesn't work out or if God directs somewhere else. And if you're following the Lord, he may say, okay, I want you to go through this first because even Jesus had that happen. If you remember, it says he needs must go through Samaria when they were journeying. He had, a, he had to go there, talk to the woman at the well, if you remember the story of the woman at the well. It says he, if, Right before that, it says it needs must go. He had to go talk to that woman at the well before going to where they were going to go. So sometimes our lives do take journeys that send us in other directions. And so Jesus doesn't have a plan B for us. We may have one, and we try to make it fit in, or as a last-case effort, but nothing surprises God. He knew this was going to happen, or he knows what's going to happen in our lives. You may be in a situation today where you're thinking, man, am I, I'm really don't know what to do. My job's getting ready to end. I don't have a place to go. I don't, whatever it is, I don't know the situations. But, you know, we may be thinking, man, I'm, I'm at wit's end. I don't know what to do next. You know, this doesn't surprise God. God knew a thousand years ago this day would come where you're thinking, oh, what's going to happen? God just didn't wake up this morning saying, oh, my goodness, Brian, what are you going to do? You need to get a job. That's right, Cole, you need a job. You need, you, need, you need to have something. It doesn't surprise God. He knew it from the foundation of the earth. He knew it. Does, it may surprise us because we're not thinking like he thinks, but it doesn't surprise him. So we need to spend that time asking him for the guidance, that direction, rather than trying to do it on our own. We need to think on those things that are godly to keep us in touch to what, as he moves us, as he guides us, as he directs our lives to follow him, we can hear what he's having to say. So... Uh, there's a letter I want to read that was back in the 1990s. Billy Graham had a, a crusade that was going really strong, and he had gone to Glasgow, Scotland, of all places, and had one of his tent crusades there. I think this was in 1990 exactly. And it's a, he had a real strong push for the youth, did a lot of things for youth. And during this event... At the end of this event, it helps if I grab the right sheet, too. Uh, at the end of this event, he was back in the States, and he got this letter, and I typed this out. Yes, I said, I've got to read this, because this is really good. And this is from an 18-year-old girl from Glasgow, Scotland. I'm not going to be able to read it or sound like Billy Graham, but I'll just try to read it, and you guys can get the best out of that. It says, before you came to Glasgow, I was an 18-year-old with a very big chip on my shoulder. I thought God owed me so much. I thought no one loved me. I thought there was no meaning to life. Something was missing in my life. I thought I was having a lot of fun, 
I was going out with the guys and getting drunk. I hated my family and felt so unloved. To be honest, I still feel unloved by my family. They think I'm just a loser. One of my brothers used to sexually abuse me. The other beat me up. I feel I've had it rough with very little love in my life before this week. Oh, I'm no angel. In fact, I'm a totally awful person. A few months ago, I was expelled from school. I was blaming drugs. My parents are still mad at me. My dad is a doctor, and my mother is a teacher. They say it looks bad on them having a daughter like me. I don't fit in with my family. I heard you were coming to Glasgow, speaking of Billy Graham. I heard you were coming to Glasgow, and I said I would not go. But where I work, I was told I was assigned to do first aid every night of the crusade. Amazing how God works those things out. Says, I went on Tuesday and I mocked you. I laughed at you. I said, what does he know anyway? I said, doesn't he know God does not care for us? But I guess I was listening anyway. On Wednesday, I said, I don't deserve God's love. I never cared if anyone saw me or what anyone thought. I felt love for the first time, and on Thursday night, I came forward and received Christ as my Savior. I want to know this God, who loved me more than anything. I feel loved as I write this letter, and I have been received back home. And that's very similar. I saw that, I was like, wow, this fits in really good. Because, you know, even though our actions have consequences and stuff, you could see what was happening with the son here. And you could see that he's at, he's at wit's end. This girl was wit's end. She was kicked out of school. She's out of her house. Sometimes it takes that wit's end. Hopefully it doesn't take all of us the same to be at wit's end before we turn ourselves back over to the Lord. I'll mention one other story. And my love for reading and history and stuff like this. How many of you saw the movie Unbroken? I'm sorry if you saw the movie and didn't read the book first. Did you read the book first? Anybody read the book before seeing the movie? Did you read the book too? The book is way better, am I not right? A hundred times better. There's a guy, Louis Zamperini. I'll give you a little bit of background. Let's just take a minute. But Louis Zamperini is his name. And he was a distance runner and was on the U.S. Olympic team in 1936 in Berlin. Well, the World War II had not started then. And he ran distance running. He was more of a sprinter, but this one he ran the one mile. The last quarter mile of the one mile run was the fastest final leg of a quarter mile recorded up to that point. He ran it so fast, that record stole, stood for 20-some years after that as a record for the lastest quarter mile of a one-mile run for 20-some years. Impressed, him so, impressed a person in the audience so much that he was asked to come up and see him because Adolf Hitler wanted to see who this fast guy was that he saw passing everybody on the last lap. He didn't win a medal or anything because he was so far behind, but he impressed people that much. Well, anyway, because of his fame and notoriety, he was in a POW camp when he was, his aircraft had mechanical failure in the Pacific Ocean, and he crashed their plane in the Pacific. They got in a life raft, and this is, this is the point. Him and two of his other crew members of the bomber that he was in was in a life raft. And another crazy thing is that he had survived the longest amount of time at sea in a life raft of anybody in recorded history up to that point. 
And at one of the days in there, and I've, it's been a long enough time since I've read the book, I don't recall, but one of the point, days between when they crash landed and when they were picked up by the Japanese, he told God, God, if you get me out of this alive, I will serve you with my life. That's what he, and he said, I promise to God, and he goes, and I meant it. And if you read other, I have a couple other books. I have a devotional book of his, and he has another one called The Devil at My Heels, which is a very similar. Have you read that one too? Have you ever read Devil at My Heels? Parallel type of book. And uh, he, uh, he talks about how that he really meant what he said. Well, this was in 1944. So in the 1950s, he was a famous person still. War is over. He got married to a, a young lady and having a horrible time at it. Was turning away from anything having to do with God. He was an alcoholic. His wife and him had a child left. She didn't have anything to do with him anymore. Olympian or not, don't want to have anything to do with him. It was terrible. Convinced each other to get back together to try to make it work one last time. They were in some s small little flop house hotel-like place, and they were coming back to their room, and they said they saw two other people coming the other direction. And if you saw the movie, it wasn't in this, but it was in the book. <laughs> and so do you remember the part where the two people came down the hallway, and they were laughing and smiling? And some in passing, he's asking them, well, what are you so laughing or happy and smiling about or something like that? And they said, hey, why don't you guys come with us tomorrow? There's a Billy Graham crusade going on downtown, I believe it was Los Angeles, and you guys come with us. And he didn't want everything to do with it, but his wife convinced him to go. But he said, I'll go on one condition, is as soon as it's over, we can leave. We don't stay for anything, talk to anybody, as soon as it's over, we can leave. And she says, okay. So he went to the Billy Graham crusade, and as soon as it was over, he got up with his wife, and they left. And so the people invited him again the next night. And he said, okay. He didn't want to go again, but finally the three of them kind of pressured him into it. He said, I'll go. And said, as soon as it's over, we're leaving. And as soon as it was over, he gets up, and he's starting to walk down the aisle. And there's like 1,500 people in this tent revival. And as he's walking towards the aisle, he's moving through the chairs, and as he's going to the aisle, Billy Graham says, there's some of you out there who have promised God your life and you haven't done it. You haven't followed through. And he says it just stopped him. He's like, like he's talking, there's 1,500 people out there and Billy Graham didn't know Louis Zamperini, but he says it just kind of froze him in his tracks. But he continued on and he kind of stopped and he started turning again and he says, and there's people who've made promises years ago and your, your life is in ruins because you're not following God on your promise. And I can remember in the book, he says he stopped at the aisle and he looked at the door in the back, and he looked at the altar up front. And for a few seconds he paused, and he came to the altar up front. And if you don't know much about him, maybe you can look up history and stuff on him, he ended up starting 27 homes for troubled youth. Usually church ran, or church organization ran, homes for troubled youth kids and stuff like this, bringing ministers, help them, preaching, like a summer camp type of thing. His rest of his life was dedicated to helping start home for troubled youth and runaway youth. Another statistic that Billy Graham mentioned in this thing is that 33% of youth that run away from home will turn to prostitution in the first 48 hours because they don't have skills, they don't have trade, they don't have jobs, they can't do anything. So within 48 hours, one-third of runaway youth will turn to prostitution. A statistic he also gave on this said five thousand young people in the United, this is just the United States, 5,000 young people, teens, that run away from home are buried in unmarked graves every year in the United States. From ones that are just neglected, left, leave home for one reason or another, but 5,000 youth. 
I don't say I'll have to try and impress or scare or do anything like that, but there's a lot of bad things that can happen when you drift away. And going back to our story, we can see that this younger son is at wit's end. He's in a pig pen. He's eating the food that the pigs eat. He's down to absolutely nothing. And so what's he going to do? Let's look at Proverbs for a second before we go to the final point. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gains little by little will increase. Proverbs 13, 18 tells us, Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. The Proverbs is full of wisdom and full of I don't succeed, and I'll be the first to admit it, of reading. A, I try to read a chapter of Proverbs every day. That's usually what I do in the morning before I go to work. There's so much wisdom day to day, and I've done that for since we've been married years. Since before we have married, I try to read a chapter. Because there's 30 days in a month, more or less, some 31. There's 31 Proverbs. I mean, it works out that you read one a day. You can read through the book every month. And there's a lot of great wisdom there. And these two verses are exactly what goes in line with this. So, not just what are we thinking and what our actions produce, but the third point would be, what are we doing? If we look in chapter 15 and verse 17 of Luke, it says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say, say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And when things get bad and really bad, we do come to ourselves. If you look back in verse 17, he says, But when he came to himself. That means you're like having that one-on-one -on -one conversation of what in the world am I doing? Sometimes that may end up in jail. Sometimes it may end up in a rubber raft out in the middle of the Pacific after having engine failure in your, in your World War II bomber. Or it could happen when you're in a pig pen feeding pigs. could happen in Abu Dhabi. They have everything on the outside going great, but in the inside you're needing that spiritual something that you're just lacking. And for the younger, or for the younger son here, he comes to himself, and he's thinking again. There's the thinking part. He's no longer thinking of, oh, what can I do with this money? What can I do with the inheritance? What can I do on my own? How much better can I have things? He's thinking of how many hired servants have my father, that they have bread enough and plenty to spare, and I'm sitting here, and I'm, I'm starving. I don't have anything. So he's trying to think back now of the things that his father had taught him. And so he came up with that real quick plan B as we were talking about a few minutes ago. His real quick plan B was, was being put into action as we look through in, in verse 18. He's saying to himself still, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He was willing to just be a servant. Man, I've been so bad and I know my dad's going to be like, I told you so. 
just make me a servant. That way I'll just, I'll just be with them because they have enough food and they're living fine. Because he remembered what they were like. They're living fine. They had what they needed. They weren't starving. They weren't impoverished. They were doing okay. And he's, oh, I could just be like one of those. I'll be, I'll be content. So the son and both us know that the father will forgive if we ask for forgiveness. Because the son didn't sit there and think, I wonder if my dad would. I hope my dad might. I think he would. And that's the same way with Jesus. We don't have to wonder, will Jesus forgive us? None of us have done anything so bad that Jesus can't forgive. None of us have drifted so far that he can't bring us back home. There's no far country so far away that Christ can't allow us to come back into his fold again. We all have drifted. That's our sinful human nature that we have to battle. But Jesus is still that same forgiving Jesus. And we know that. We realize that. The Bible tells us that in so many places. And there's a great example in this parable here. That no matter how far, as long as we ask, like in verse 22. Oh, I'm sorry, 21 too. Because he, oh, let's just go back to where he goes. Because he takes it and puts it into action. He puts, his, he puts it into action in 20. says, and he arose and came to his father. I want to stop there just a second because there's a good point that I heard in a, from a different uh, minister. And he said that, a lot of us can think we need to change. We know we're doing something wrong. You'd be on drugs or you'd be leaving your family, cheating on your wife and neglecting your, whatever, you fill in the blank. I'm not trying to name anybody any specific sin. And you could be doing it this way wrong. And you know you need to be doing it this way or this way. But until you get up and do something to change that, nothing's going to change by hoping and wishing it'll change. You can have a car with no gas in it. And you need to drive that way. The GPS, you have missed your turn on Abu Dhabi, and you've got to drive 10 kilometers to get across the street. But you know you need to actually put your foot down and move the car. Just turning the wheel, I need to go that way, so I'm going to turn the steering wheel. That doesn't make the car go that way by turning the steering wheel that way. You have to actually get moving. We have to do something about it. And it's the same thing here. The son arose, shows action in verse 20, and went to his father. And the good thing is, is just like we'd mentioned, while well, he was yet a great way off, he's a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I'm sure that'd be a great feeling for that son at that point, that the father comes and meets you. You realize, oh, he's not mad. He's not upset. But he didn't just stop there. Oh, he's going to forgive me. I don't have to say all that stuff. The son already knew what he needed to do, and he did it. If you look in here, it says, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He's thinking on those spiritual things now. He's thinking those things are whatsoever things are good and lovely and honest. He's telling him, I was honest. I've sinned. I'm wrong. And that's the point that hopefully we all be able to come to. And, but I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And this is the great part where it says, The restoration of the father is in full. In verse 22 to 24, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and a fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So the restoration was in full. He didn't put him as a servant. Oh, you can go out and plow the field for six weeks and then I'll let you sleep in the servant's tent. And that's the same way Christ will do for us. If we are, if we're willing to just swallow our pride, if 
for what little. We could, like, again, maybe just slide a little bit, maybe a long way. You may try to hide, it may not. You may be right with him. I hope we're all right with the Lord where we need to be. But if, no matter how far or how great the, that slipping or that moving or that journey is into a far country, he'll bring us back and restore us in full. And kind of like the end of any Paul Harvey story, the, the, the story doesn't end there. Because if you remember back at the beginning, then Christina and Andrea... Well, Christina was gone, and Andrea took what little money that she had saved, and she went to one of those photo booth places, you know, like you see in some of the carnival places where you can sit with your friends in there, and you cram everybody, and you get the pictures, and it takes like four pictures, and little black and whites, like this big, and it kind of prints the pictures out. She took a majority of her money and just took her picture and got a bus ticket and went into Mexico City. And while she was on the bus, she cut up each of the pictures and wrote a little something on the back of each of those pictures. She went to all the places that she thought Christina might be. And she'd stick a picture in a hotel and stick one in a bar and a nightclub and stick one at the bad areas of town. And she went back home. And not long after that, I think it was like a day later, Christina was walking down the stairs of a hotel and she looked up and she saw a picture she recognized. She said, that's my mother. So she reached up and she took the picture off. And she saw, that's my mom. And she turned the picture over and on the back it said, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I love you. Come home. And that's the same thing Christ tells us. I don't care. what He doesn't ask us for the list of our sins. He doesn't care where we've done, where we've been. We're all the same. We're all sinners in need of Christ. And that's where we stand. Look at one last verse with me in 1 John chapter 1. As we close with this. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter how far. Jesus doesn't care what we've done, where we've been. He just wants us to be honest with him and come back to him. And that's the opportunity. As, as we stand this morning and close out in a word of prayer, uh, if you'd all stand, please, we'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, I, I do come before you, Lord, and I, I just pray that your name be glorified in what has been said and done here, and I know that we thank you for being the God that forgives and the God that separates our sin as far as the east is from the west, and you're able to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, no matter how little or how great of a distance we walk or journey from you, we do seek your face. We pray, Lord, that as a church that we would seek your face daily, that we would seek you in actions and the steps that we take made to reflect Christ because there is such a great need here for people that are lost, that never hear Jesus or don't know Jesus or think is just a good person. You're the Savior. You're the one and only Savior that can give us eternal life, and we thank you for that. And Lord, I, I've been, I know our pastor in our old church has mentioned it to us. I just want to say this thing too is that by talking with one of the elders or a deacon or one of the leadership committee and one of the ministry teams, Lord, we could help them with whatever answers that they would need or a direction that they need in their life or pray with them. And not doing anything wrong, it's doing something right. And that's what we're here to do is to follow you and do what's right. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.